we're running to God. And when we run to God, uh, we run to his word. That's where he's chosen to reveal himself. That's the vehicle he's chosen to reveal himself through is his word. And today, as we, as we come to his word, I, I want us to hear a word about his word. And I want to encourage us uh, on a daily basis to come to his word. So this morning, we come to Romans chapter 3. In chapters 1 and 2, we've already covered two chapters. We're cruising along, all right. The Apostle Paul, in the fir- those first two chapters, he's demonstrated the unrighteousness, the sinfulness of both Jews and Gentiles, of all people. His purpose is to show that because of our unrighteousness, salvation requires faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 2, along with showing the unrighteousness of the Jews, he also must, and I can't think of a better word, but, so I'm going to use this, even though it might not be the right word, he must attack the false things that they're relying on for their salvation. He attacks their reliance on being descendants of Abraham, of being born Jews. He attacks their reliance on having been given the law. He attacks their reliance on the outward physical symbol of circumcision. Paul's purpose is to show that none of these external things offer salvation, will bring them salvation. And at the end of chapter 2, he makes them extraordinary and, and what for them would be radical statements. Let me summarize. We covered this last week. Paul says that if a Gentile keeps the law, it will be like he's circumcised. He'll, he'll become like a Jew. And that, that his very existence, the existence of a Gentile keeping the law, following God, will stand in condemnation to a circumcised Jew who has been given the law but doesn't keep it. He then says being a true Jew is not defined by who your ancestors are or whether you're physically circumcised, or whether you follow the letter of the law, a true Jew is one whose heart has been circumcised. It's been marked. It's been transformed by the Spirit of God. A true Jew is one who's empowered by the Spirit to faithfully obey God's law. So whether you were born a Jew or a Gentile, you were transformed into being a true Jew when the Spirit of God does a work in your life. When the Spirit of God circumcises your heart, Paul says. Now, Paul knows that this kind of uh, talk is not going to go unchallenged. The problem is that he seems to be calling into question uh, the very nature, the special nature of what it means to be a Jew. He seems to be saying that being part of God's chosen people is somehow meaningless. And by doing this, he seems to call into question the promises that God made to Abraham and to his descendants in the Old Testament. For example, just one promise, Genesis 17, 7. Just prior to God giving uh, this special sign of circumcision to the Jews, God says to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God promised Abraham and his descendants, not just an earthly, but an everlasting covenant. Now, Paul is saying that a true Jew is not a physical descendant of Abraham, but any person with a circumcised heart. 
And for the physical descendants of Abraham, this seems to be a violation, be contradictory to the covenant. It seems to call into question the character of God. And that brings us to Romans chapter 3. In verses 1 through 8, Paul takes a, a brief detour from his main purpose. He'll return to uh, humanity's unrighteousness in verse 9. But in verse 8, his purpose is to briefly show that even though the Jews will be judged, God is not being unfaithful in any way. Paul shows this, is, uh, this by answering three questions posed uh, by an unknown or an imaginary opponent. We'll look at the first two questions this week, verses 1 through 4. And uh, the third question next week in verses 5 through 8. Now, the first question is this. What is the advantage of being a Jew? If Jewish lawbreakers will be condemned by Gentile lawkeepers, and if Gentiles can become true Jews by a spirit-empowered circumcision of their heart, doesn't that make being a physical Jew, a descendant of Abraham, meaningless? Doesn't that call into question God's covenant and therefore God's character? So in verse 1, the question comes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Doesn't the Old Testament teach that the Jews are God's special chosen covenant people? Wasn't circumcision given to them as a special sign of their unique relationship? Their set-apart relationship with God? Doesn't this give them tremendous advantages? And in verse 2, Paul answers, yes, much in every way. That word much could also be translated many. There are many advantages to being a Jew. So what are they? Verse 2 continues. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now that phrase, to begin with, is one, Greek, uh, is one word in the Greek. It's, it's the word prot- proton. I don't know what it has to do with those little proton things, but something. And it means firstly, it means first or firstly. It's used in the beginning of a list of things. For example, if I were to ask you, what are the advantages of living in Southern California? Much in every way. First, proton, we have the beaches. Second, we have the mountains. Third, we have the desert. Fourth, we have uh, traffic. Oh, no, that wouldn't be, that's a different list. But you get the point. So when asked, what advantage has the Jew? Paul says, much in every way to begin with. First, and what we would expect is then a a list of advantages. But he only gives one advantage. That is, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul then stops here. It seems that at this point, since he's just taking a a brief detour from his purpose, he's not going to cover all the advantages right now, but he wants to know there are many. It's as if he's saying, just, uh, yes, there are many advantages. Let me give you one to tide you over. And I say this because Paul's going to specifically address God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel, with the Jews, later in the letter in chapters 9 through 11. So that's coming, that whole discourse on that. In fact, in Romans 9, 4 through 5, he does give a a much longer list of Jewish advantages. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
We'll look at all these advantages when we get to chapter 9. But in Romans 3, Paul only mentions one advantage. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That word oracles is the Greek word logion. It's similar to the logos, the word. And it refers to the divine utterances, the sayings of the divine. The Jews' first advantage is that they had been entrusted with the divine utterances of God. They had been given the word of God. Specifically, uh, for us, these 39 books of the Old Testament, the law, the history, the wisdom, the Psalms, the prophets. The Jews had been entrusted with God's revelation of himself. They'd been entrusted with God's will for humanity. They'd been entrusted with God's plan and his purpose for all creation. What an awesome advantage this is. It's like they were given the owner's manual to to life and to afterlife, while others struggle to understand who God is, what his plans are, what their purpose in life is. The Jews had it all right, right there in front of them. So yes, the Jews had a big advantage. They had the oracles of God. And I think the reason Paul points out this specific advantage is because it's relevant to what, who, what follows in the, in the rest of this passage, specifically what we'll get to uh, next week in verses 5 through 8, but some for now. The, the Jews can read and know and study the revealed will of God. They can know who God is and what God desires, what God requires. Therefore, they should be the first to understand and obey God's word, his wisdom, his will. But the question is, the question is, do they take advantage of their advantage? Do they uh, not only have the word of God, but do they follow the word of God? Do they trust and obey the oracles of God? And it seems that in general, uh, they don't. They have the word of God, but they don't faithfully obey it. Instead, they become ensnared in their own foolish logic, picking and choosing what they do and they don't obey. Jesus recognized this about the Jewish leaders. In Luke chapter 11, verse 42, he says, But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They strove to keep the letter of the law like tithing. But they neglected the spirit of the law like justice and the love of God. All the while, believing that because they were Jews, because they had the law, because they had been circumcised, that they would not be judged, that they would be saved. Now, I want us to take a moment and and just reflect on what this implies for us. The Jews, they had advantages. So what advantages has the Christian? Much in every way. And we would begin, and we could begin by listing many advantages. But let's focus on, on the one Paul points out for the Jews, because we Christians share this same advantage. We too have been entrusted with the oracles, the divine utterances of God. We've been given the word of God. We have the law, the history, the wisdom, the Psalms, the prophets, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Plus, we have the Gospels, the book of Acts, 
the epistles, the, the letters of Paul and others, and the book of Revelation, the 27 books of the New Testament. We've been entrusted with God's complete revelation of himself. Not that it says everything about God, but it says everything we need to know about God. We've been entrusted with his complete word and will and wisdom for all of humanity. What an amazing advantage we've been given. And we too have to ask the question, don't we? Are we taking advantage of our advantage? Are we diligently spending time in the word of God? Are we allowing the knowledge of God the knowledge that he's revealed about himself and his will for our lives to penetrate our hearts, to guide us, to direct our steps. Are we faithfully obeying the word of God? Do we value the advantage we've been given? Recently, I've been uh, reminded of just the overwhelming value of God's word in my life. In our home group, uh, we're going through uh, a book. It's called The Purple Book. Silly name, but, but it's an overview of the basic foundational truths of Scripture. It breaks these truths into, into separate topics. And each lesson is filled, it's just basically filled with verses on that specific topic, leading you through a study of these topics. Now, this week, the topic was uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, often when I read the Bible, I'm thinking about, how to teach what I'm reading to others, uh, because that's my job and that's my joy. But this week, as I read through these familiar verses, I focused not on how to teach them, but on how they apply them, how to apply them to my life. And I was just overwhelmed, really, literally, with, with, the spirit, with what the Spirit of God does in my life. There was one passage that I sort of fixated on. Uh, John's Gospel, ver- chapter uh, 14, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus says these familiar words. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Just two. Somewhat familiar uh, verses from all of the divine utterances of God. But I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed with humility. I was overwhelmed with gratitude for them. They teach that Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, has, has gone to the Father and he's asked to give me a helper, a comforter. An advocate, one who will help me face the difficulties of this world. One who will lead me and guide me and teach me. One who will help me, uh, uh, convict me and empower me to overcome the personal sin in my own life. One who will help me to know and, and proclaim the truth of God's word. One who will dwell with me uh, forever. That's a mighty long time. So as I read these divine utterances, they contemplated their uh, humongous implications for my life. Uh, a new sense of peace and a, and a joy and confidence and, and satisfaction just kind of overwhelmed my soul. Because I know, not for the first time, but maybe in a greater way. It's like every time you read uh, the divine utterances that you've read before, God just piles on more of their meaning of their importance for you. I know that I'm not alone in, in anything I, I do in my life or my ministry. 
The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, He dwells in me. And as I allow the divine utterances, those divine utterances to penetrate my heart, and as I submit to the Spirit who dwells in me, I know that even now, as I stand here before you this morning, I know I don't stand alone. I know that I don't preach alone. I know that that a helper is with me. And therefore, I know in the power of the Spirit, not in my own power, in the power of the Spirit, I can accomplish whatever God calls me to do. That as His Word goes forth, He's accomplishing things. Because that same Spirit that's in me is in you. They're working together. And I share this with you this morning. It's just a, a small example of the great advantage The awesome impact the oracles of God, the word of God can have in our lives. If we'll only take advantage of our advantage. If we'll read it, if we'll believe it, and if we'll obey it. If we only... If we'll only take advantage of what God has given us. So so again, I ask, are you taking advantage of your advantage? And if not, why not? What's stopping you? What could possibly be more important than knowing and following the divine utterances of the God of the universe? Anyone got anything? Don't raise your hand. So let me encourage us this morning. If you get nothing else out of this message, and I hope you do, but get this, the word of God is of great advantage. It's a treasure. It's a gift worth more than gold or silver, anything else in this world. And there is no excuse for not taking advantage of this gift. I mean, if, you, if, if you're, I don't have a Bible. Well, there's one, there's one in front of you. Take it. We have Bibles in these. Take them. No excuse for not taking advantage of this gift. There's no excuse for not partaking of God's word on a daily basis. The reading, the the studying, memorizing, meditating upon, and obeying the word of God is is the key to, to this life, to this Christian life that you're called to. It's the key to the abundant, the spirit filled life that Jesus promises. So if I may be so bold, turn off the TV. Shut down the computer, put away the video games, put down the phone, unless of course your Bible's on your phone, and, and open your Bible. Take advantage of your advantage. Every day, allow God's divine utterances to impact your life. Okay? Put away your phone. Si- no, silence your- Reminder, silence your- That could be my phone. I don't know. I think I forgot to turn off. <laughs> That's what the Jews needed to do with their advantage. But as we've seen, at least some became ensnared in their own foolish thinking. So you see, they thought that their God-given advantage was automatic salvation for being born a Jew. When instead their advantage was the word of God that if believed and obeyed would lead them to salvation. And the fact that they didn't truly understand their advantage leads them to some, uh, some wrong and illogical conclusions. And that's what the, the rest of this passage is about. Paul continues uh, to have this simulated conversation with an unknown opponent. With one who's, who, who has a wrong understanding of Jewish advantages. And so he asks, what about God's faithfulness to the Jews? 
That's sort of the heart of this, this, uh, this uh, objection here, this, this piece of scripture here. This question isn't in the text, but in, it's implied by Paul's answer. Sort of like somebody out there is asking, and then Paul replies, what if some were unfaithful? Does this faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The objection is that if God does not save all Jews, then he has somehow not been faithful to his promises. But Paul rejects that logic. He wants to show the absolute, unquestionable faithfulness of God. He says, if some Jews are unfaithful, if they don't take advantage of their advantage, if they don't put their trust in and obey the oracles of God, the word of God, if they don't trust and obey the Lord, then the fact that they will not be saved does not mean God has been unfaithful to them or to his promises. The faithfulness of God is not nullified. It's not set aside. It's not made nothing by the faithlessness of some. He then continues. He he ups the ante. By no means. God's unfaithfulness is not even an option. It's unthinkable. In fact, Paul writes, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. It's not only unthinkable if some Jews are unfaithful, but even if everyone, all humanity proves false, are liars, even if no one believes, no one puts their faith in in God, even if no one is saved from the wrath of God, God would not be untrue to his covenant promises. God will always be true, always be faithful, no matter how we respond to him. Then to support this claim, so this is a a claim, Paul's thrown out there. Then to support this claim that God remains faithful, even when he judges the Jews, Paul in uh, Romans 3 verse 4 writes, It is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So Paul's quoting from uh, Psalm 51 verse 4. If you're familiar with... uh, David and his life, King David and his life, you'll know he wrote this psalm after, uh, as a confession for his sin of adultery and really murder with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. He says to God, this is Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is saying that that his sin with Bathsheba, his killing of Uriah, like all sin, is ultimately against God. Therefore, God is just. God is justified to judge him. David, the king of the Jews, the prototypical Jew of his day, I would say, recognized, recognized that because of his sin, he deserves judgment from God. God cannot be blamed for judging sin. Why? Because David, king of the Jews himself, said that God had the right to judge him because of his sin. He didn't claim that his Jewishness or his circumcision would spare him. I have sinned, David said, that you may be justified, that you may be just, that you may be righteous in your words and blameless in your judgment. So Paul answers, so Paul's answer to the question, what about God's faithfulness to the Jews? is this, God's judgment of some unfaithful Jews does not mean God is unfaithful. Instead, the sin of those God judges justifies his judgment. In fact, it reveals his righteousness, his 
justice, his faithfulness. It shows that God is faithful in his promises to judge sin. So yes, God is faithful when he judges the Jews. That's sort of the, the answer uh, Paul is defending. They're saying, they're saying okay, you're saying uh, the Jews aren't automatically saved, uh, but that, that strikes out the covenant. And Paul, Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. God is faithful. He will be faithful. He is faithful to all of his promises. But the thing I want us to also see here is the two sides, the two sides of God's absolute faithfulness, his unquestionable faithfulness. We've seen on the one side, on the one hand, that he will be faithful to judge the unrepentant sinner, whether they be Jew or Gentile. That's been hammered in in these last two chapters. But never forget the other side of the coin. Never forget what Paul began his letter with. Never forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will be just as faithful to save those who repent, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Paul uses David's sin and his words of repentance and humility as an example of God's right to judge the Jews because of their sin. But in that same psalm, that same psalm of confession and repentance, David begins with these amazing words. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Never forget that God is merciful, that God is loving, that he will forgive our many transgressions, that he will cleanse us from our sin, that forgiveness and salvation can be found not only by being a Jew, excuse me, can be found not by being a Jew, but by repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord. David, in, in, in this psalm, also recognize God's, recognizes God's faithfulness in transforming his heart. Verse 10 of Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. God will faithfully transform hearts. He'll faithfully transform the hearts of those who put their trust in him. To use the words of, of last week, the spirit of God, will, will, with, uh, God will, will circumcise your heart. He will restore your joy. He will transform you from the inside out. Isn't that what God does for each and every one of those who trust in Jesus Christ? Isn't isn't God absolutely faithful to not only save us unto eternal life, but also to continually transform our earthly lives? We see this throughout Scripture, and we continue to see it throughout history. We continue to see it in our world today. I see it. I see it in our church as God is faithful to work in our lives through our difficulties and our suffering that we experience God continues to bring his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. He continues to restore the joy of our salvation. But it's in these times of difficulty 
these times of suffering, that our faith, that our faith in a faithful God is put to the test, right? You see, there are some who would say, maybe not say, but there are some who would think God is faithful when he does what I think he should do. When he answers my prayers like I think he should. When my life goes in the direction I want it to go. When I have the things I want. When pain and suffering disappear. That's when I say, God is faithful. And if he doesn't do what what I think is best for me, then I get angry at him. I blame him for my difficulty, for my suffering. Is God's faithfulness nullified by our difficulty and our suffering and our anger? Let God be true and everyone a liar. No, God's faithfulness and our faith in him is seen in our difficulty and our suffering. Let me share with you a passage that that has always spoken to me about God's faithfulness. More divine utterances about God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. It's not in your notes, so you might jot it down. It's Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words... Though everything is going wrong, though I don't even have food to eat, though life is difficult and I'm suffering, yet I will, he continues, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Even though life is not going the way I I thought it should, I thought it would, I will rejoice in the Lord, never forgetting that he saved me, that he is my strength in times of trouble, that he enables me, like the deer, to walk through uh, difficulty and pain and suffering of this life. God is absolutely faithful, not because he does everything I want him to do, Not because he delivers me from life's difficulty and suffering, but because he saved me and he strengthens me to walk through life's difficulty and suffering. So on the one hand, God will be absolutely faithful to judge sinners. But on the other hand, for those who repent, for those who turn to God, for those who trust in God, for those who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will faithfully provide love and grace and mercy and salvation and joy and transformation and eternal life. He'll faithfully walk with you through your pain and your suffering in this life. And for those who've come here this morning, maybe burdened with their sin, burdened with the pain that this world dishes out, maybe not even knowing if you can be forgiven. Know this from the oracles of God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God is faithful. 
And if you hold on to, if you continue in your sin, if you do not believe, if you don't repent and turn to him, he will judge you. He will condemn you for your sin righteously, faithfully. You'll be condemned to an eternity of torment and separation from God. But if you'll repent, if you'll turn to him, if you'll trust in him, if you'll believe, you'll not be condemned. Instead, uh, the Apostle John writes, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God offers his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. He offers you a, a, a clean and transformed heart. He offers you joy and salvation. He offers to walk with you through the suffering of this world. But the choice is yours. Which side of God's absolute, unquestionable faithfulness do you wish to encounter? His faithfulness to judge sinners or his faithfulness to save you, to save those that repent and trust in him? And I want to encourage each person to to come to and to trust in the absolute faithfulness of the Lord. If you've never trusted in him before, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who died in your place, the one who gave his life for you, then trust in him. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust in his finished work on the cross. And receive his, by grace, his gift of love and mercy and forgiveness and eternal life. Receive his gift of the Holy Spirit, who then who then transforms your heart, circumcises your heart, receives his comforting presence in your life. And if you today have trusted in the Lord, and yet are in need of, uh, we sang of it this morning, more of God in your life, more of this faithful Lord, you need his strength as you walk through difficulties and pain and sorrow in this world. Know that God will come to you. James writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Short oracle, right? Short divine. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise from God that we need to take advantage of. If you draw near to God, if you come to him in worship and in prayer and through his word, then he will be faithful to draw near to you. And the question is, will you draw near to him? Will you come to him? And if the answer is is yes, I want more of God in my life. I need him. I need more of God. Then, Then I would encourage you. As an outward sign of, of your desire to draw near to the Lord. As we worship together, as the, as the worship team comes forward. I think we're going to sing uh, two songs this morning to close. I would, I, would, I, would, I would encourage you to come forward to the altar or to the, this first row of pews. I know this can be a, a little uncomfortable and I'm not saying uh, what I'm going to say can't happen where you are. I would encourage you uh, to symbolically draw near to the Lord. I realize it's just a symbol. Not for his sake. God knows your heart. But for your sake. 
as an external sign, as, a, uh, as what the, the Israelites put down in the Jordan as they cross, as a memorial stone for yourself and for others that you today are committed to drawing near to him. Drawing near to him, not just today, but on a daily basis. You're committed to his, his word, to his divine utterances. You're committed to trust in his absolute faithfulness for your life. Come and receive grace and mercy. Come and receive his love and forgiveness. Come and receive healing and transformation. Come and receive the joy of your salvation. Come and receive his comfort in times of difficulty. Come and receive all that your absolutely, unquestionably faithful God has for you. Would you join me in prayer as the worship team comes forward? Father God, you are so amazing. You are so faithful. You're so trustworthy. Lord, you've given us so much, Lord. You've, you've revealed yourself in your word, Lord. Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray for myself that we would renew our commitment to your word, that this, this great advantage you've given us for knowing you, for learning of you, for trusting in you, Lord, and that we would have the power by your spirit to obey the things you reveal to us that you would transform our lives and our hearts, Lord, and that we would continue on a daily basis to come to you, Lord. We would know your faithfulness. Lord, I pray for those that are going through difficulty and struggles and pain and, and even deep suffering, Father. I pray, pray that they would turn to you, they would come to you, they would receive from you all that you have to offer them this morning. Lord, be with us as we, as we worship you, as we continue in worship of you. And, and Lord, I call... Uh, unto you to help us, whether it's in the seat we're sitting in or whether it's in the front row, the altar, wherever we are, Lord, that we would in our hearts come to you. In Christ's name, amen.